In our previous episode, we talked about the prison industrial complex and tracing the historical roots of black communities being over-policed to slavery. Today, we want to zoom out and talk about some abolitionist arguments that have dominated public discourse since George Floyd's murder. But before that, I have a special guest to introduce to you today, a new panelist, Ashley. Ashleen, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, um, my name's Ashleen. I am a second year human social political science student at Cambridge University. Um, thank you so much for having me on here. It's um, really exciting to be part of this conversation. Thanks for coming on board, Ashleen. We're really excited to have you. And I'm Jingmin Tan, and I've appeared on a couple of episodes before and used to be producer at Declarations. So moving back to the topic at hand, we have a couple of strands at play here. I think it's important to appreciate the nuances of each argument in order to have robust public discourse about it. We have to bear in mind that while the debate can easily be abstracted to a very academic policy level, the differences in policy decisions have very real implications for those caught in the penal system, which means predominantly black and brown bodies. Critics of legal punishment will argue that the construction of criminality is in itself political. These abolitionists are fundamentally opposed to punishment as a justified form of treatment by the state. Some argue that we should eliminate the language of crimes and criminality from our vocabulary since it is used to justify hard treatment imposed by the state onto the individual. Others object to the concept of crime being used to impose values on individuals who may not share them. Still, others think that focusing on the concept of crime places undue emphasis onto punishment when abolitionists prefer to repair the harm caused by the wrong done. As Ruth Wilson Gilmore, a pioneer of the critical resistance movement in the US puts it, abolitionists ask what are the conditions under which people resort to using violence and harm to solve problems. What they're getting at, I think, is how the kinds of relationships that make people vulnerable to interpersonal violence develop, and how the sum total of these relationships creates a society that equates safety with control. So one manifestation of this is the broken windows theory, which enjoyed popularity in the 80s and 90s. According to this theory, disorderly behaviour gives rise to an atmosphere where street crime can flourish, one broken window left unattended becomes a thousand broken windows, so to say. Therefore, the police are encouraged to maintain order by reinforcing informal control mechanisms of the community. In other words, to crack down on minor misdemeanours like vandalism, loitering and public drinking. This theory has become associated with discriminatory policing practices, such as stop and frisk and the incidence of police hotspots in black neighbourhoods. Interestingly, the social scientists Wilson and Calling, who came up with the broken windows theory and were employed by the public authorities of NYC, Boston and LA as consultants, admitted that they were not confident that there could be a satisfactory answer to the concern of equity in implementing this theory. They ended up downplaying the importance of race as a factor in the community's perception of fair treatment by law enforcement officials. That's so interesting. Thanks for that, Ashley. Another manifestation I found is the creeping expansion of regulation. Here, we aren't just talking about criminal law. Yes, more and more kinds of behaviours have been criminalised over time, but we also have to talk about how other fora of public life have become increasingly regulated. 
For example, the education system is another site of control, with police officers actually assigned to patrol schools and discipline policies that suspend or exclude students. In the U.S., officers are entitled to use force on and arrest students, which disproportionately affect black students, as we all know. And in both the U.K. and U.S., social scientists have made links between the school exclusion system, underachievement, the family environment, crime, and gang culture. They've also established a high correlation between school exclusion and unemployment. As as such, abolitionists believe that law enforcement in the form of the police are irretrievably flawed. They cannot be reformed because the institution is built on morally wrong foundations. For more on the historical roots of the police and slave patrols, give a listen to our previous episode. Abolitionists point to repeated failed attempts at reforming the police throughout history, from instituting best practices to calling for greater accountability to illustrate that police departments cannot do the job of making a society safe. For instance, there are a multiplicity of problems with implicit bias training. On one level, arguments have been made that the classroom or laboratory setting of implicit association tests don't accurately reflect real-world situations, lacking the adrenaline and time pressure that often face police officers. And then there's the superficiality of the actual content of training sessions. Academic studies cast doubt on whether implicit bias training has any long-term effect on behaviour change. Now I think we have to talk about the legal structure. It seems that the entire legal structure on which policing practices are built promotes a culture of impunity. Let's begin with the doctrine of qualified immunity, which shields officers from facing any civil sanction for using excessive force. That means that officers don't even have to face trial unless they violate a clearly established statutory or constitutional right. While the doctrine dates back to the 1960s, it was increasingly invoked in the 2000s to cases involving the use of excessive or deadly force by police. Legal experts, including Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, have noted that the existence of the doctrine encourages police brutality. Democrats in the House of Representatives proposed the Justice in Policing Act after George Floyd's murder, which restricts the application of the Qualified Immunity Doctrine, but it isn't expected to pass through the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans. Another more obscure legacy of white supremacy within the justice system is found in a Supreme Court decision in 1976, Washington versus Davis. A group of black people who wanted to qualify as police officers challenged the DC Police Department's hiring policy as discriminatory and therefore unconstitutional. However, the challenge failed because the applicants could not prove that the state actor intended to discriminate, which is notoriously difficult to prove. This is a form of institutional gaslighting, that is, requiring black folks to prove someone has racist intent toward them. It completely misses the way systemic racism operates in which seemingly neutral laws, culture and processes work to the disproportionate detriment of black people. So initially, I was planning to research the movement for police abolition and prison abolition separately, but I quickly realised that was misguided. In an article written in the Boston Review, Derricka Parnell asserts that police officers are the foot soldiers of the prison industrial complex. And I think that's right. Just as there is a set of relationships between multinational corporations, guard unions, and legislative agendas within the prison system, 
and that's something that Davis argues, Angela Davis, that is. The prison system and police departments operate symbiotically to prop up a system of oppression for black and brown folks. Police officers are literally hired to do violence work because that is the only thing that differentiates them from other social workers. Abolitionists point out that the police perform functions that other types of workers are better equipped to do, conflict de-escalation, responding to drug-related behaviour, homelessness, and public drunkenness, to name a few. And I think that's just it. Prisons and police abolitionists don't just want to get rid of those institutions. They want to reimagine the way our society is constructed, one in which life is valued and precious, one in which the state doesn't automatically resort to force in order to defend the supposed safety of the society. Therefore, their project doesn't stop at divesting from incarceration, We have to take those resources and reinvest them in schools, housing, food, social work, a Green New Deal. They would rather have community care workers respond to harms in society and have towns use restorative justice models instead of throw people in prison. Rather than lock drug users up, they advocate for healthcare solutions and harm reduction strategies. Abolition, therefore, is a broad political vision. Critical resistance calls it a practical organising tool, as well as a long-term goal. It is very much a goal under construction, in that the specifics of what abolition would look like have to be worked out. But its central objective is to make the police and prisons obsolete. The goal is to reduce, with a view to eventually eliminate, reliance on the police for ensuring public safety. Nonetheless, there are small concrete steps that can be taken. Stop constructing new prisons, reduce the prison population implement hiring and budget freezes, making budget cuts, and complementing these measures with restorative and community justice solutions. And what about serious crimes? We hear it all the time. A knee-jerk reaction to abolition is the question, but what about the rapists and the serial killers? Abolitionists say that when we implement concrete, evidence-based strategies to deal with all sorts of behaviours we normally conceive of as criminal, things like school shootings and domestic violence and homicides, we have no idea what would remain labelled as criminal. What I mean is, the core of criminality, if there is one, has yet to be defined. And perhaps, once we begin to move towards the direction of abolition, we may discover that the label of criminality is wholly constructed and artificial to begin with. So, abolitionists want to change and challenge the idea that the only way to deal with such behaviours is with guns and prisons. That said, I think we have to acknowledge that this is the most common and probably the strongest criticism of what abolitionists advocate for. And perhaps the abolitionist response does seem inadequate. But perhaps it's also cause for us as a society to reflect on why we are so hung up on this very scary but in reality very marginal notion of crime. So let's now move on to what defunders are fighting for. To fund the police advocates have a more intermediate goal. Their project is not an alternative to the abolitionists, but complementary to police abolition. They want to shrink the role and responsibilities of the police while shifting attention to alternative solutions for societal problems. This doesn't just stop at mental health crises, homelessness and drunkenness. It also extends to missing persons, car crashes, even dealing with drunk drivers. 
The idea that defunders and abolitionists share, I think, is to rethink our assumptions of criminality and what the police are equipped to deal with. There's a whole other area of defund work, and that focuses on immediate solutions to reduce police power. I think in this respect, there are overlaps with people who prefer to talk about reforming the police. One concrete example is the hashtag 8 can't wait proposals that's put forth by Campaign Zero, a group of activists and researchers who collect and publicize police department data and practices in the U.S. What the 8 can't wait proposals are, are a list of 8 reforms that police forces should adopt. And this is banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring de-escalation, requiring warning before shooting, that police should exhaust all other means before shooting, that the police should have a duty to intervene and stop excessive force by other officers, that they should ban shooting at moving vehicles, that police forces should require a use of force continuum, and that police forces should have comprehensive reporting each time an officer uses force or threatens to do so. And to me, these proposals sound so obvious, yet only two of the 100 cities in the 8 Can't Wait database have implemented all eight proposals. It's quite unsettling to know that that's the case. So, those are the defunders and the abolitionists. Still, others want to reform the police, and here we move away from radical critics to more moderate positions. Tracy Mears is a prominent voice in this camp. She was on President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. She believes that the police is a public good, and to return to that, the police, in its current form, requires radical transformation. Rather than proactive policing, she recommends co-production of public security with communities. She argues that the police force should reorientate its values to place human life as paramount. But as we mentioned previously, attempts at reform have time and time again gone awry. So I can't help but wonder if her proposals are no less idealistic than those of the abolitionists. But there are also success stories, ones that don't necessarily fit within our theoretical assumptions. Take this example of the city of Camden in New Jersey. In 2012, it disbanded its police department and rebuilt it from the ground up. The entire force was dismissed and invited to reapply with a much more thorough application process. Another notable change was that the police force was actually expanded such that the officers have time to get to know the communities they are protecting. And despite officers actually taking a heavy pay cut, such that the budget increased by only 9% compared to an increase in size by 64%. Complaints about excessive force are down 95% since 2014. I really think that the example of Camden shows the need for experimentation on a local level. But as sociologist Alex Vitale argues, we can't see technocratic reforms as the end point. Policing cannot fix the underlying problems of crime and poverty, and it cannot cure a political system monopolised by big money. And that's why, while I believe we have to understand the nuances of abolition, defunding and reform, I think they exist on a spectrum of ways to address social problems. It's worth mentioning that all this debate we've talked about today is very much situated in the US context, and I think it's important to remember, international as we are, that the factors and the historical considerations that might be at play, depending on where we are, might look very different. And I do wonder how it would look like in the UK, for example. 
So actually, I had a lovely chat with an ex-Met police officer and he told me some really interesting things about the UK police system that he experienced whilst working in the criminal investigation department. And he agreed that, yeah, the UK police force is definitely not perfect, but the politics and resources must be considered as an element within this. One of the main things that stood out for me was the decreasing interaction between police and communities. In London, for example, the boroughs are being merged, reducing police knowledge of problem houses, etc., reducing the ability to respond to 999 calls, and ultimately resulting in an over-policing of black neighbourhoods. He believes that Section 60 of the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act should definitely be reviewed, and I, I definitely agree, as it gives the officers the grounds to stop and search individuals without a reason. And this is happening to black individuals daily, showing the inherent racial bias of the police. He further pointed out a need to decriminalise certain things, such as drug taking and sex work, which would ultimately save billions of pounds and would reduce the scope of policing, which I thought was another really interesting factor. Definitely, I totally agree with that. I think no matter what the political and contextual considerations are at play, one thing that does seem to be a trend, to be a commonality, is that wherever the situation unfolds, it seems like criminality gravitates towards black and brown bodies. And that seems to be the case whether it's the UK or the US. It's a case of selection bias in the UK where certain labels like terrorist and gang members conjures an image of, of a black face rather than a white individual. And those biases end up playing out in whatever powers and whatever legal powers are given to the police to do the supposed job of protection and ensuring safety of the community. So that's it for today's episode. I'm Ashling Williams. And I'm Jingmin Tan. Thanks for joining us at Declarations Podcast. You can catch our previous episodes in this series, as well as all other episodes we've done on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Till next time.